Levels, levels, test, test, test. The microphone is in a box. After clearing the land and planting corn, as they always do, the Lincolns then endured a brutal winter in Illinois. All of them got sick, and all of them nearly died, but they all also ended up surviving like the little cockroaches they were. Is that still too harsh? I really don't know. <laughs> Welcome to We Talk About Dead People, a podcast where we talk about dead people. I'm your host, Aaron C., and I'm here with my good friend and co-host, George. Say hi, George. Good afternoon. Yes, good afternoon to you. We hope to keep our listeners entertained and interested while we break down various members of the odd and exciting family that is humanity. The way this works is that George and I will do our amateurish best to give a basic account of the major events in the life of a now-dead person and give a fairly accurate depiction of their individual character, which is harder to do, but we're going to try anyway. So, George, who are we going after this time on the pod? Well, I'm not saying I'm happy about it, and I was also not consulted about it, but here <laughs> we are. It is finally time to talk about none other than Abraham Lincoln. Well, yeah. <laughs> This is the long-awaited Abraham Lincoln episode. I can't say I was thrilled to cover this one. Um, not only is Abraham Lincoln a controversial figure in his own right, he was a U.S. president, which means the amount of information available about him is insane. But, uh, alas, this was a listener request, and I was given a choice. I could either cover Abraham Lincoln or some folklorish figure known only as the Wandering Jew? And the last time I tried covering a folklorish figure, it was William Tell, and we all know how that went. So I decided to do Abraham Lincoln and let the little wandering Jew go on wandering for a little while longer. May Hashem guide his steps. Yeah, folklore is also a little bit, it's a little bit above our pay grade, I think. I mean, it's not like either of us went to Miskatonic University or anything. But in any case, that being said, I think I'd still rather talk about the wandering Jew than Abraham Lincoln. Well, that's too bad because we're going back to the past, baby. Let's <laughs> love that line. We started We Talk About Dead People on Lincoln's grave by talking about his assassin. So now we're going to talk about the honest hat-wearing lawyer himself. I think there was a contradiction in there, but I'm going to let it slide. Let it be. <laughs> you can never trust those hat-wearing lawyers. No. <laughs> I mean... <clears throat> To come back to your point about presidents, though, I feel confident that we could do a pretty thorough review of the presidency of William Henry Harrison, at least. Um, I think we could cover that one in an episode, but that one was only what? Like, what was it like two months or something? It was not very long. It was not very long. So there's probably no way we can really do the the necessary justice to this gargantuan figure in this format. But yeah, yeah. But we're just going to do the basics. So let it be known that I promise I will not be tearing away at the fabric of reality to try and fit all the available information into this episode. I have done that before, and uh, I uh, tried to restrain myself a little bit this time. It will be, shall we say, a controlled burn, like the flashing powder of a small lady's pistol singeing the hair of a beloved American president before death's sweet release. <laughs> I sense that this was not a randomly chosen metaphor. Um, no. <laughs> wow, spoiler alert. Well, shall we go down into the history lab and get this show on the road? I say we Yankee Doodle do. <laughs> the 
In an experimental and bizarre world set adrift amidst the seas of history, a ghostly figure emerges. A long-armed, lanky creature spawned from the brush of Kentucky. A monster or a hero? A deceiver or a truth seeker? Perhaps the most controversial subject of this show since Andrew Jackson, only the ripples of time can reveal the true nature of The Lincoln Lawyer, starring Matthew McConaughey. So, George, if you had to choose one hat to wear for the rest of your life, what hat would you choose and what function would it serve? Well, probably the most useful hat I own is a papaka, which is one of those sort of tall cylindrical like Russian fur hats that Cossacks wear because you can store so much stuff in there. It's amazing. Like I can put my wallet, my keys, my gloves, my scarf, all of it in there. And I have no, you know, no risk of losing it because it's on my head. Once I was even trying to transport a small vessel of hot soup several miles. And so I, I wrapped a scarf around it. I put it on my head and then I put the papaka on over it. And it was still warm and unspilled when I got back to my apartment on my bicycle. <laughs> Your bicycle? <laughs> when did this happen? You were riding your bike with a papaka and a bowl of soup? This is when I lived in Indiana. <laughs> oh, dark times indeed. That would require such a hat. <laughs> I believe you did that too. Like people fresh to the show might be like oh he's making that up i'm like that's just george that's just why they call me honest george <laughs> uh, yeah i've heard that one many times of you so what about you if you had to choose one hat to wear what would it be and what would its function be i can only tell you that i there's no way i can outdo that uh i think i i think if i had to pick one hat for the rest of my life Oh, geez. I'm thinking like I'm thinking through the hats that you own. And I remember the one that you had that was like the feathery one. You remember that one? Like Peter Pan looking thing. Oh, the German hat with the, with the yeah. feather thing with the dumb spart in it. Yeah, that was I, I don't know how you rocked that, but you managed to pull it off. Probably something like that, because, you know, according to all the pickup artists, in order to get all the ladies, you got to have a hat with feathers in it. So this is obviously this is well-known knowledge. Obviously. So if I, if I was going to have to wear a hat for the rest of my life, I'd love it. I'd love for it to be like a lady magnet. Um, <laughs> that would be the function. It would just magnetize women and I could scam them out of money. Well, knowing your personality as I do, may I recommend like perhaps a zebra print trilby? <laughs> Are you accusing me of being a neckbeard? <laughs> I've seen what you look like. <laughs> You know, I had a, I did a, a, a side episode for um, War and Conquest, Joe, and it was the first time we were gonna, we were gonna do a face reveal. Um, <clears throat> no, and he, I, he, I put on the camera, and he goes, "Oh my God!" I said, "What?" He's like, "I thought you were like gonna be super unattractive and like really nerdy," and I'm like, "What you see is what you get, son." <laughs> and then I put on my German feathered hat and stole all his girlfriends. Amazing. Yeah, well, I like, okay, I like so, the way you brought you sort of brought up that like backhanded compliment to yourself. That was very subtle. I did. It It was very good. It was very good. Though what I found funniest of all was just his reaction because it was like he was startled. He was like, what the fuck? <laughs> <I> was like, 
You're saying there are people who podcast who are under 300 pounds? Yeah, well, I guess it surprised him, but, you know, hey, I guess when we did start, I did weigh 40 more pounds, so I guess I had a little bit of fat voice, which, you know, is a thing. I've told you about fat voice, right? No, you haven't. Is this some professional thing that you've learned about your, your studies? Yes, it is. If you go back and you listen to my show or the show early on, I sound a little bit happier, a little bit chubbier, you might say, and that's because about 15 to 20 pounds difference can be the difference between you sounding like a like a fat person and like a isn't sounding happier a good thing yeah like if you're gonna do a santa voice for something you want to have that 15 20 pounds but if you're trying to sound like a sexy you know car sales ad or whatever you want to you want to not have that 15 20 pounds because people can hear it i know that sounds weird but it's true (laughs) ah the magic you learn in digital media studies i know it's it's crazy but that's enough about that uh, computer, please bring up, God help me, Abraham Lincoln. Affirmative, my lord. There we go. So, George, if you would be so kind, would you please describe the image below? I will, but first I want to share one little thing that just occurred to me, which is that a long time ago, um, one of my close friends, his little brother, who's several years younger than him, so like when we were like early teenagers, he was, you know, like a kid, like, seven or eight or something and he he had trouble for whatever reason pronouncing abraham so he always it always ended up coming out as hammerhand lincoln whenever he tried to say it <laughs> and so that's what i always think of with i, I still think of him as hammerhand lincoln hammerhand lincoln <laughs> sounds like a superhero i know right like we're gonna, we're gonna have to copyright that before those weird people over at marvel try to make hammerhand lincoln a thing <laughs> They'll steal anything these days because they're out of ideas. Like, and it's becoming disgustingly obvious that they can't write anything creative anymore. They can just pervert things. That's it. Uh, like two years ago, I said that. And I was like, yeah, you can see it in some of their movies and their, some of their comic books. And now? Yeah, that's I mean, all it, they do. At this point, it literally is like the meme of the people in the boardroom and one person has the good idea and is thrown out the window. It's like, <laughs> what should we do? Reboot a movie from two years ago reboot a movie from three years ago with a different actor, we could write an original story out the window. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much. Pretty much. Yep. But I'm glad you shared that, but I still want you to describe this picture. See, I've been trying to avoid this because (laughs) I really need to review these scripts before before we start the episode. So, um, yeah, what we have is not a picture of Abraham Lincoln. I'm just going to be honest. It was a picture of Abraham Lincoln before somebody who'd finished their uh, their intro to Photoshop class got a hold of it, and um, I think they added, is that a jet pack? <laughs> yeah, I think it's either a proton pack or a jet pack. Yeah, and like possibly night vision goggles. Yep. Are those actually... Are they- <laughs> Or those therm- those might actually be thermal goggles, not night vision. It's it's hard to yeah. tell. Um, but yeah, so I'm just gonna ignore the stuff that's uh, stuff that's photoshopped on. They also did something really weird with his arm. I'm not sure what's going on with his arm. I think it kind of got messed up when they photoshopped the jetpack on. But all huh. that notwithstanding, it is a a tall, somewhat emaciated looking man. Um. Mm-hmm. He's, uh, 
He's got what appears to be a rather velvety vest on, which I, I approve of. It's a, it's a five-button vest. He, however, has his watch chain hooked all the way on the highest button, which that's a that's a bold choice. That's a bold choice. Not everybody can pull that off. I'm more of a third button kind of guy, but that he's got the he's got the watch put pinned to the highest button. So like bold strategy. Uh, he's got a bow tie, which is very askew and also very uneven. But I mean, the man's the president of the United States. I imagine he's a little bit busy, doesn't have time to get that perfect symmetrical bow tie in the morning like yours truly does. Um, I like his coat. He's got that that long 19th century coat, you know, the real the real OG 19th century look. He's got a much healthier head of hair than I do. That's for sure. His hairline doesn't seem to be receding at the, uh, you know, the rate of the Red Sea before Moses. And, um, yeah, his face is just very, very thin. Like, he kind of looks like he just got out of a POW camp, to be honest. Very thin, very weathered. He's got a little bit of a creepy look in his eyes. I'm not going to lie here. Like, it's like he knows something you don't, and he's happy about that. Yeah, he definitely has a kind of a gangster swagger, you know? Like, he's kind of, he's got one arm behind his back, one arm out front, and he's sort of leaning back, you know how that is, with his chest puffed out? Mm-hmm. I thought it was an interesting photo, I just couldn't find it without the proton pack in the night vision goggles. <laughs> <laughs> okay, is that, I was wondering how this came about. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's, he's a very striking-looking fellow, Abraham Lincoln. Um. Very, uh, very strong features. Sort of looks like my boss with a beard, but that's another, that's another discussion for another day. So thank you for that description. I think that was apt. (laughs) You didn't mention the weird curtain behind him though. Wait, what's weird about the curtain? It's a curtain. It's just a curtain. Why is that curtain there? Did they have no other wall without a curtain on it? Who knows? Next time on Ancient Aliens. Next <laughs> Could this curtain prove the Anunnaki spawned the human race? Ancient astronaut theorists say yes. <laughs> All right, so let's get into some real history here then. How's that sound? Let's do it. Okay, so where to begin and where to begin? Uh, it's uh, it's always tough for me to know where to start with a guy like this. Uh, much like any American president we cover on this show, it's really quite hard to know what thread to pull. We could go the Civil War route and talk mostly about the war, but that's sometimes kind of boring. We could go the Civil Rights route, and that's usually just a lot of case law and, you know, nonsense, bullshit, boring, talky stuff. Um, We could go the economic or global route, but that's just a never-ending rabbit hole. We don't want to start digging into bankers and things. Um, even though we, we will. Just, I was, I was going to say us not digging into bankers and things <laughs> has the, has the fundamental identity of this podcast changed in the last month. <laughs> it's true. If you're not reading about bankers at the end of one of these, uh, writing one of these episodes, you're not doing it right. <laughs> so where do most historians go when discussing a figure of such magnitude? Well, for decades following the life of this culturally sainted American president, Many people went to the apocryphal or somewhat mythological route. But this is a history podcast, not a Netflix documentary. How about this? I'll tell you what I know off the top of my head about Abraham Lincoln, and we'll go from there. How's that sound? Okay. So this is time traveling, okay? So I wrote, I sat down to write this episode. I was like, okay, so what do I know about Abraham Lincoln? This was months ago before I did the research. 
Abraham Lincoln, 16th president of these United States of America. Did you actually know without looking it up that he was the 16th president? I did. Hmm. I did. I promise. (laughs) This is what I knew, okay? Or thought I knew anyway. Okay. Okay. He arrived on the scene as a country boy raised in the thick undergrowth of the American Midwest. He became a lawyer at some point, eventually moved into politics, and if I recall correctly, wasn't hugely successful, um, except for the whole presidency thing. (laughs) Um, At least not initially, obviously. I remember that he had an allegedly not-so-amazing marriage to a short woman named Mary Todd Lincoln, lost at least one son to some kind of illness, uh, led the Yankee Northerners to victory in the Civil War, as they say, and in American slavery as we know it in these those as we knew it in those days with the Emancipation Proclamation and got assassinated in an improv theater production that took the yes and concept way too far. <laughs> I was see I was I spent that whole paragraph trying to find a way I could make like a Todd Howard joke about his marriage and Skyrim and it just didn't come together. <laughs> uh what's the song that he had her sing? How did that go? Ragar the Redgar the Red or Ragnar the Red. Ragnar the Red. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that was one of the funniest things. I wish I still had that clip. Um, so, yeah, something, something. Greatest president ever, allegedly, according to some people, was not well remembered in the South for obvious reasons. And now his face is on the $5 bill and half the license plates in Illinois. Uh, that's pretty much what I know going into this. So it's probably safe to say that I started pretty much fresh with this one. Hmm. Skyrim was also having a civil war. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. What I'm side? Gonna, what's gonna, gonna keep this in the back of my mind through the episode? I hope you keep making Skyrim jokes this whole time. Uh, okay, that's too much pressure. I want. <laughs> <laughs> but but if if I had to, uh, uh, would he side with the Stormcloaks or the Empire? Well, I mean, the Empire was all about sort of preserving the union of Skyrim with Cyrodiil, wasn't it? Hmm. And the Thalmor are kind of like the bankers. Hmm. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. There might be something here. I'm gonna keep. Chew- I'm gonna keep chewing this over. I I should ask my friend over in Markarth. Nepos the nose about what was going on with the Thalmor. <laughs> <laughs> so here's 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 another little little window into what I know about Lincoln. So my dad read a book aloud to my family when I was a wee lad called Lincoln the Unknown. Family readings were not a common thing with us. Uh, in fact, I think that was the only time we ever did it. Like, all of us sat down and my dad read us a book. Um, maybe that's what made it special. It was just the one time. Very fond memory of mine. I remember this book painting Lincoln as a very troubled soul who was sort of trapped in a chaotic world, guided by the light of hope and his belief in America as a thoroughly confused home, but a home worth preserving. So a little bit like projection of his personal life onto what America is like writ large. And I remember feeling vaguely sorry for Lincoln throughout the story, but also, you know, inspired by his courage and fortitude despite the darkness of his day. And then I did a Google search. (laughs) Um, Yes, it was only on the initial Googling of this book that I find out that it was actually written in 1932 by Dale Carnegie, the famous salesman and popular self-help speaker and influencer who was also responsible for the all-time best-selling book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Is he related to, like, those Carnegies? I don't know for sure. I didn't do that much of a dig hmm. on him. But I have read How to Win Friends and Influence People, and it's it's a good book. I mean, 
if you really want some old-fashioned, like, American, like, here's how to pick up yourself by your bootstraps and, you know, yeah. how, to be, how to be friends with people, like, uh, rags to riches stories. That's the Dale Carnegie story of America. Ragnars um, to riches, huh? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so I've read How to Win Friends and Influence People a few times, uh, understanding full well it's basically a book about how to endear people to you with as little effort as possible. So I know what I'm dealing with now that I'm looking at Link in the Unknown. So knowing that Link in the Unknown was written by perhaps one of the best communications professionals in the history of the world changed my perspective a little, as I know how narratives can easily be spun about people to color them in a certain way. This book was such a hit in the States that I would guess it's the reason why Americans, especially Yankees, have such a rose-colored view of Abraham Lincoln. Not only did this book portray Lincoln as a world-weary champion of reason, it sort of crystallized him in the public mind as some sort of reluctant hero. Which is fine, as long as we understand one thing. The story of Abraham Lincoln and the vaguely positive feelings most people have about him today, especially here in the Midwest and, you know, around the land of Lincoln, it's pretty much because of Dale Carnegie's take on the man. Yeah, and that's I think, it. Not to get too sociological, but I think that's a, a very common thing with, uh, with the American sort of public psyche as well, is the, uh, the reluctant hero is the best hero. We don't like people who sort of want to be in charge um we like people who are sort of at least we can we can tell ourselves that they just wanted to be a regular person and sort of the world foisted this responsibility upon them and they had to do the best they could we don't like thinking of our leaders as people who spent their whole lives wanting to be leaders we distrust that type of person which is funny when you think about it since kind of by nature democracy elevates people who want to be in charge because you have to like actually go through political career and decide you're going to start running for office and trying to be in charge as opposed to other systems where there's just you know say a uh, an aristocracy where you're just kind of in charge because you are and you can end yeah. up with people who are good at it and people who are bad at it people who want to do it and people who don't whereas with a democracy to end up in charge you kind of have to want to be in charge so i've always thought it was funny that in america we have this admiration for people who are in charge but didn't want to be even though by nature our political system you have to want to be in charge in order to get there yeah it's a pretty it's kind of like an inverted kryptonite honestly like it's maybe a weakness it's maybe not maybe almost definitely a weakness in america um, you just have to pretty much pose as like just being a normal person who didn't want to do this. Like, for example, like we make jokes about we made jokes about Greta Thunberg on the last couple of episodes. She was going to nuke the history lab. I don't know if you know this, but we're in the future right now. And Greta Thunberg or Tron has taken over the world. You oh. got to go back. <laughs> Honestly, can she be that much worse than the people who were already yeah, controlling the world but, before we went into how far into the future are we? Uh, 20... 152. Oh, geez. Wow. Yeah, we yeah, went see, way I th out. I thought I was just tired because work's been crazy. I didn't realize I was like 30 years older. Holy shit. <laughs> well, it's actually 130 years older, but that's close enough. Wait, did you say um, oh, 21? Oh, wow. Wait, how's she? 2152. How's Greta Thunberg still alive? She's Greta Thunbergertron. Oh, how am, so I, she's, how am I still alive? Um,. I don't know. This is I'm time traveling. I'm talking to you in the past. This, it's not canon. <laughs> wow. You know, Google Hangouts is amazing. I didn't know it could cross like the space time continuum. Thank you, well, corporations. Yeah. Yep. Thank you, Google. Uh, no, I'm really glad you made that point because it the um, 
the lore of Abraham Lincoln is very much endeared to a different spirit of America, which one of the things that's happened the last couple of years is with all with all the hate that America's been getting, I've been digging deeper into into the history and the, the founding fathers and that sort of thing, which is really interesting because I never, ever had an interest before. But for some reason, I'm just like, oh, I find Benjamin Franklin amazingly interesting. I find Thomas Jefferson amazingly interesting. And that feels so weird because I never found it interesting before. Uh, it's sort of like uh, like ancient Egypt. I wasn't interested in ancient Egypt until I talked to Howdy. And even then I was still like, ah, well, it's not my kind of thing. And then I just, I've been on rabbit holes on it. But this, uh, this spirit of the, un, the, uh, the reluctant hero who just, there was nobody else who could do it. Um, yes, that's very much of a, like the second wave of the American spirit. The initial wave was like, we don't need those British bastards kicking us around and taxing us. And the second wave was, we just kind of have to do the right thing because we're Americans, right? Like this kind of cringy sort of like, all about freedom, but not actually like understanding what freedom is. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So this is normal um, that a large figure like Abraham Lincoln would have lots of different views on him. Um, large figures in history don't always get a fair treatment. They're always, 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 especially recently, colored by some kind of narrative. In fact, right now, as I began research on this, <laughs> I basically had to decide if I was going to prop up Abraham Lincoln or dunk on him. So in the interest of setting ourselves apart from the mainstream, I have chosen to begin with a hostile attitude toward Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> I just sort of to, to riff on one thing you just said about him. Um large figures in history not getting a fair treatment. I mean, that's in the nature of history because history as a study, it isn't really what happened. Exactly. It's what people perceived and said happened. That's what history studies. Because yeah. ultimately we can't have any real level of sort of mathematical or scientific certainty about say what happened in the year 146 BC. What we can know is what did people think happened? What did they say happened? What were their perception of the events? It's so the point of history isn't really to get back to an actual scientific certainty about the minutia of events. It's to understand the role of these events in shaping the consciousness of the people both at the time and following it. Are you sitting on your big brain right now? <laughs> yes. I'm, it's it is, your armchair. In fact, it is I'm literally it is it has formed a hot air balloon and is levitating me in the middle of my apartment right now. <laughs> it's a good thing I've got these high ceilings. Yeah, uh, just make sure you don't turn on the ceiling fan. Um, yeah, no, but that's 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 a brilliant way of saying that. I'm really glad you said that because history really is a doorway of perception. Um, that is something that I did not understand for two years, two or three years running this show. Maybe even four years, almost almost up to William Tell, I just thought that, oh yeah, people have different facts, but this is generally what happened. But when you frame it as a doorway of perception, I think that's what broke my brain with uh, with William Tell, because the perception kept shifting and my my sort of Western linear thinking mind was trying to be like, but what hap what really happened? What really happened? And there was no answer, except that this is what was perceived to have happened. And that, that was a complete paradigm shift for me. But speaking of doorways of perception, yes, I'm going to be hostile toward Lincoln because I've only ever been nice to him basically my entire life until I met you. 
<laughs> I don't know um, what you mean by that. No, no. I, I Look, I thought he was like an American hero. I had been to his cabin. I'd been to Springfield, visited the museum, all that stuff. You know, I liked Lincoln generally, but there was still this, this vibe I had about him that was like, there's more to this story. There's a lot more to this story than I know. So I decided I would just adjust my doorway of perception to being looking at him basically as the painting in the, uh, the Klansman house in Bioshock Infinite. Did you ever see that? No. There, there's a, they have like a, a Ku Klux Klan like faction in the sky in that game. And there's a painting of Abraham Lincoln on the wall at Ford's Theater. And he's got devil horns. Oh, and, I've seen the pa- Okay, I didn't know what it was from. I've seen that paint that picture. Okay. Yeah. And then is behind him is John Wilkes from? Booth with a halo around his head. Uh, yeah, I've, I've seen this in memes. I didn't know what it was from, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So let's just use that picture for now. I'm not going to go the Dale Carnegie route. I've already been down that road. I'm taking it another way, and it's going to be interesting. But don't let that frighten you away, my dear Yankee friends. Remember, I was raised in the land of Lincoln, and never once until fairly recently did I question the sanctity of our dear president. It wasn't really until I journeyed to the far lands south of the Mason-Dixon line that I learned there was another perspective on him. One that painted him in a way that made me rethink my automatic acceptance of this American sainthood. And again, this is a problem with history. It's not a one-sided tale. It's also not a two-sided tale. It's like a kaleidoscope of shattered time. And we can cut the pieces together and see different things, but there is absolutely no way we can read the minds of the long-dead participants in the faded hall of bygones. I am giving Lincoln the hostile treatment because it is the perfect opposite of what I was raised with. Like a negative photographic print... It will look inverted to many, but when it is fully developed, we shall see even more detail than ever before because of it. (laughs) So for all intents and purposes from this point forward, I hate Abraham Lincoln until he can change my mind like Andrew Jackson did. Is he up to the task? Only time will tell. And on that note, let's begin. The dumbass, bleeding-heart abolitionist, Protestant bastard Abraham Lincoln was unleashed upon this accursed land in the year of 1809, marking the well-deserved beginning of the end for the godforsaken American experiment. Wow, we really just did like a Tokyo drift right there. Yeah, let me rephrase that. I'm going to take it down just a couple notches, okay? The dipshit, industrialist, culture-destroying, income-tax-inventing, warmongering, Dixie-pillaging colonizing part black white supremacist Abraham Lincoln fell from heaven alongside Satan himself in 1809, where he would pretend to single-handedly end the enslavement of Africans in America just to save face on his exceptionally bad public image with white people, while further ensconcing universal debt slavery for the entire human species, regardless of race until the day of Armageddon. Sorry, is that still too much? <laughs> no, we're just we're just doing multi-track drifting in the narrative right now. This is great. <laughs> well, don't mind me. These are all just other people's takes on the man. All of those are real labels that have been applied to Honest Abe since he hit the scene. Can't let Dale Carnegie have the only hot take, am I right? That wasn't me. I wasn't even riffing. Those are things that are like like on his Wikipedia page. Amazing. I know. So let me try to pare back the negativity a teeny tiny bit. Okay, so <clears throat> here we go. <clears throat> In 1809, beneath the watchful glow of the Star of Bethlehem, a child was born of a virgin in a manger. Picture with me, if you will, a farm on the American frontier. Around the homestead is a weather-beaten woman doing the wash or some other such chores, several young boys working on various tasks, and one tall, bearded, English-looking fellow slaving away in the dirt to produce food for the winter. 
He looks up from the dust at the hot sun and wipes the sweat away from his brow. This may be a very hard life, but at least it's a free life. Things hadn't been easy this year, no sir. But this English family hadn't fled the British for things to be easy. Fighting had been rough, but it was the price of freedom after all. Abraham Lincoln looks down the rows of sprightly green shoots popping up from the earth and smiles, satisfied. His three sons are learning what freedom means. Hard labor, yes, but for who? Not the British, not the government, but for God and country. This is the American way. This was always the plan. The Lord's plan. Suddenly, a shot rings out and Abraham Lincoln collapses amidst the crops. The boys rush back to the cabin, terrified, where the eldest, Mordecai, grabs the loaded rifle from the gun rack on the wall. Stepping out into the field, he sees his brother Thomas standing in absolute shock beside his father's dying body. Mordecai also sees that a third figure is entering the field, an Indian with a rifle, heading straight for Thomas. Without hesitation, Mordecai raises his rifle and at the age of 14 years, avenges his father's murder. This was only one story in the long and strange lineage of the Lincoln family, carried on through family tradition right down to our subject for st of study for today, Abraham Lincoln. Instead of being named after Mordecai, the lad who shot his father's attacker, Abraham Lincoln, our guy, was named after the man who was assassinated. So there's that. Which I found very, very interesting. He was named after a man who was also shot. <laughs> so, little Abraham Lincoln was born in the February of 1809, not under the star of Bethlehem, but in a one-room log cabin in Kentucky. After a series of moves throughout their ancestral history, the Lincolns had finally settled on Sinking Spring Farm. But not for long. When little Abraham was two, his family lost the land in a dispute where they were forced to move eight miles north to live on Knob Creek Farm. Also, a delicious whiskey, for what it's worth. <laughs> true, true. Can't mm, be denied. Very good. Mm -hmm. Here, Abraham would recount his early days. At a young age, he helped cultivate the land and plant corn and pumpkins. Um, he also attended what he called ABC school, so we know we've got a genius on our hands. <laughs> I don't know if that was a colloquial term back then, but that's what he called it, ABC school. I'm, I'm not familiar with it, so. Yeah, I'd never heard it before, but ABC I'm assuming. ABC school. I guess that just must mean just like, you know, basic grammar school, I yeah, guess. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. Yeah. His father, Thomas Lincoln, did very well. Um. He was made a road surveyor. Wait, wait. Which at so least... the Abraham Lincoln who was assassinated, who is that his grandfather? Yes. Okay. Just wanted yes. to clear that up. Uh, yes. Thank you for making that very clear. Um, it was either his grandfather or his great-grandfather. I didn't write it in, and I wrote this so long ago. I forgot. So <laughs> anyone who wants to look, feel free. <laughs> so anyway, his dad, Thomas, was a, a road surveyor. A raid surveyor. That'd be something interesting. Um... But no, he was a road surveyor, which at least proves that these primitive people knew how to build roads thanks to ABC school. I'm trying to be as mean as possible. But he did become one of the wealthiest men in the area. Uh, unfortunately, he was really not prepared to deal with the constant land disputes that were happening in this era. So, with people moving all over the place and land ownership constantly being in question due to the fact that it was still mostly unsettled, and with Thomas Lincoln owning a bunch of ancestral land that had been surveyed and marked for sale years and years prior, it became easy for disputes to be more trouble than they were worth. Thomas Lincoln's land was chipped away by piece, uh, piece by piece by these disputes until it was almost nothing. Just people going, that's mine, and he'd be like, it's not, I have the paper. And they're like, well, I have a paper that says it's mine. And then it would be decided that, nope, Thomas Lincoln, you lose again, sorry. <laughs> um, Classic and with lawyers. All, classic lawyers but he's a he's a land surveyor so 
Oh, I know what you're saying. Okay. And the other thing was that all the neighbors were employing slave labor as the backbone of their business, and Thomas Lincoln would not. Um, he found that even though he was quite wealthy, he simply couldn't compete with, you know, slave labor. And his Protestant bones wouldn't let him go in for the slaves. So, he basically, I mean, I don't know how else to put this, he got beat by Amazon. <laughs> yep, so this, this is all happening in Kentucky, right? Yeah, um, and uh, there's soon to be in that, that horrifying place known as Indiana, I'm afraid. Um, Dear God. I know. Not enough Chick-fil-A's there to save it. In 1816, the Lincoln family ended up in that horror of horrors known as Indiana at a place called Little Pigeon Creek. Starting all over again, Thomas and his son Abraham, who was now seven, worked together to build a new life with fewer land disputes. Working together, father and son, they cleared a new patch, planted new fields, and built a new home. Which sounds amazing. Wouldn't you want to do that with your dad at seven? <laughs> like, settle some land, build a home, plant some fields. I mean, that's that's kind of the dream, isn't it? Yeah. Sounds, sounds kind of nice. So, because and of this should, experience... It should huh? also be uh, just noted here that um, this is pretty much around the time that Indiana gets rid of slavery, so he wouldn't have had that issue. Um, exactly. I think they sort of mostly abolished slavery, actually, in 1816, and by 1820, they'd freed all the slaves in the state. Right. So he's right. no longer having that same sort of competition issue. Exactly. So good on Indiana for that. But because of this experience, Abraham Lincoln became skilled in many aspects of the settler's life. He knew planting, land clearing, carpentry, and more, meaning he was useful enough, at least, to earn his keep and stay alive. Which, you know, back then you didn't, like, go get a degree. You, like, can you plant trees? Do you know how to build things? Are you useful? Then you can stay. <laughs> so as simpler, a family of... Simpler times. I know, it just made a little more sense back in the early American days, but... As a family of five, the Lincolns were really not all that many, considering that most people had tons of children in those days. Uh, in 1818, the number was reduced by one when Nancy Hanks Lincoln, Abraham's mother, was poisoned by bad cow's milk and died. And again, people had lots of children back then because they were your staff, pretty much. You, and they raised one another while you basically ran your own little kingdom. It was kind of kind of awesome in those early days of America. Um, I mean, I'm not idealizing it. It was also brutal and scary and lots of people died, but... You know, it made sense, at least. Well, there was no way that Thomas Lincoln was go on, going to go on like this alone after losing Nancy Hanks. Um, so he went back to Kentucky alone and left Abraham and his siblings in Indiana to fend for themselves. A fate, a fate worse than death. <laughs> yeah. Well, you've been there. You were I in was, Indiana fending was, for yourself. I was left in Indiana to fend for myself. It was terrible. It was just uh, me and my tall Russian hat and my bowl of soup. <laughs> And your bike. And my bicycle, which uh, had brakes that only worked sometimes. It, well, well, that would have been inconvenient with a bowl of hot soup on your head if they went out. It's like a Mr. Bean sketch. You just go careening toward an intersection, like the brakes squeaking and smoking and the soup spilling all over the place. Uh, he I died as that. he lived in a way that made absolutely <laughs> no sense. With soup on his head. All right, so I'm being a little dramatic again. He didn't, like, leave them all alone to fend for themselves. It's the presumable, but also somewhat understood that the children would be supported by the Pigeon Creek community and neighborhood. 
um, when things got rough. But they were also, you know, of a decent age, and, you know, back then, a six-year-old would run an entire plantation, so, <laughs> you know, wow, that's maybe an, is that an exaggeration? I don't know. Um, six, but by eight, I think you could be expected to basically, basically be an adult. Uh, anyway, life went on at Pigeon Creek. And we're going to fast forward a bit here, because if we don't, we'll be here forever. And like Howdy McCoskey said, time is clearly speeding up, so we have to make the necessary adjustments. From the age of 7 to 21, Abraham Lincoln helped out on the farm, worked with his local community, and got some basic education. Most of his learning came from books, many of which were provided by Lincoln's new stepmother, Sally Lincoln. So does that mean that uh, his dad came back? He came back with a woman, so... Yes, yes. Okay. Okay. <laughs> just, just, 18... making, just making sure that he, you know, he did come just, back. Yeah, just on his on his own from age 7 to 21. was like, well, I'm an adult now. I wonder where my dad is. No, so he came back with a woman and they had a happy life, as far as I could tell. But except for 1828, when the Lincolns suffered the loss of Sarah Lincoln, Abraham's older sister, who died in childbirth when she was just 21, uh, we don't know for sure whether or not this was a turning point for Abe, but there is some evidence that this event caused him to go into something like a soul-searching journey. Did he like start a, literal, a podcast? He almost started a podcast, I hate to say it, but he uh, back then things were a little more literal. He actually went on a journey. Um, at the age of 19, Abe hopped on a flatboat with a friend and cruised down the Ohio River, heading for New Orleans. Along the way, they were attacked by a gang of what might have been former slaves or maroons, it's hard to know. Most historical texts just say black people, <laughs> which they repelled. And before we start hollering about racism, knowing the history of the American South, it could have just been about anyone with darker skin. Just how it's written, Maroons escaped slaves, freedmen, Native American tribes, were known to join up together and start little communities in the woods, um, many of whom adopted the great raiding party strategy <laughs> to sustain themselves. Um, this was common, and if you want a good story about one of these so-called marinages, look for some material about the Great Dismal Swamp in all caps. The Great Dismal Swamp. Very interesting story. And also, a tale as old as time. I didn't know if you had a comment on that. No, I'm just trying to remember. I, I've gone through the Great Dismal Swamp, but I can't remember where it is. I believe it's in Louisiana. Yeah. It might, yeah, like northern Louisiana, maybe? Yeah. Yeah, I don't remember. Yeah. I know I've been through it, but they all, ex- they all blend together. They kind of do. There is an excellent little woodcut of a guy with a rifle, like, emerging from a swamp on the Wikipedia page for Great Dismal Swamp. Or maybe it was something that I followed to find about the Great Dismal Swamp. Either way, it was kind of badass. He's got, like, a knife and a gun. and Yeah. I thought it was pretty cool. I think that's how I discovered the Great Dismal Swamp, actually. And hell, I know I mentioned it before, but there were serious rumors going around at that time that Abraham Lincoln himself was half black just because he was a swarthy farm boy. um, Race was a really big deal back then. (laughs) Um, It was a more primitive, I guess, an intolerant, I guess, time. But I'm just so glad that thanks to Abraham Lincoln and the War of Northern Aggression, those days are long gone and we never have to worry about racism ever again. I mean, I, I haven't heard anything that has anything to do with race in so many years. Like, really, yeah. yeah, really since the Civil War, just it hasn't been an issue in the U.S. It's been great living in the Star Trek world where these things are behind us, but, you know, there appears to be a terrorist media that's interested in making lots of money by making people hate each other, so that's one thing. But anyway, if you couldn't tell, I am aware that I am in hot water talking about this man and this time. But it was this or the wandering Jew, and I'm not sure which would end up being more detrimental to my reputation in this confusing age. 
For our discerning longtime listeners, however, I'm sure they have the guts to withstand just about anything at this point. So, we're in good company. Trust me, it's, uh, is gonna get hairy, but that's okay, because we're all grown-ups, right? Right? I hope. Good lord. So anyway, this soul-searching voyage down the Ohio River brought old Abe to the diverse city known as New Orleans. Some writers speculate that Abe saw a slave auction here that left a bad impression on him, but there's really no way to geotrack a dude's movements about 200 years in the past, so we'll just call that anecdotal. Either way, Congress did ban the importation of slaves in 1808, but the black market for these kinds of things still flourished thanks to the Pirates of the Caribbean, which Disney loves, so Disney, you're racist, just so you know. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I'm just balls to the wall with this. We touched on this recently in our, I guess it wasn't really that recently, but we did talk about it in our Hugh Glass episode if you want more information on the Pirates of the Caribbean and their involvement in the slave trade. Uh, lots of useful information in that one. And it's a good story to boot, so there you go. Abraham Lincoln left New Orleans a changed man! In what way, we can hardly say. It was probably the first time he saw a thoroughly diversified area, and that makes sense, because it's around all of these major ports, and there's ships and stuff transporting people from all over the world. I mean, if he grew up in the Midwest, he probably only knew, like, Native Americans and white people. That was it. And it's also, I believe, by quite a significant margin, the largest city in the whole American South. It's very that, big. That too. It's very big. Yes. It's like, it's like, you know, sort of the, uh, the, the cliched scene of somebody coming from like Nebraska and going to New York city and everything's just so different and big and scary. Yeah. It, it's kind of, I went, when I went to New York, I experienced that culture shock of like, Oh my God, there's all these different people all around me. This is wild. It was really fun, um, and I think maybe because Abraham Lincoln is a Midwesterner, um, we probably have, I mean, eh, have things changed that much? We don't really know much outside our little pocket here, um, which is kind of charming in a way. <laughs> so anyway, it was, it was probably the first time he saw a thoroughly diversified area, but it was probably also the first time he became acquainted with some of the ugliness that exists in major ports. Um, it just seems like there's always stuff going on where there's water. Um, and I don't know why that is, but seems to be a tale as old as time to me. He returned home by steamboat shortly after arriving. So he'd had enough. He's going home. <laughs> Fair enough. That's what I would do. Fair enough. Yeah. Get on that steamboat and go back up the river. Take me back to, go. to the Midwest. <laughs> In 1821, most of the Lincolns were finally fed up with Indiana, however, and decided to move to the much better, cleaner, safer, and definitely not marked for apocalypse hellscape known as Illinois. So, as we can see with their chosen places of occupation, the Lincolns never miss, baby. <laughs> it's just one great state after another. Of course, I joke about Indiana. Indiana's really not that bad, all things considered, especially since it's it's creepy um, Siamese twin neighbor Illinois is just, you know, almost hell on earth in most places. Fair, fair. Yeah, no, it's yeah. It, both of us have, have, having lived in Indiana, I'm sure we could... We could talk a lot about old Indiana, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, I like to talk shit about Indiana, but it's, it's really not that bad. Like it's not, it's not Illinois. Basically that's, that's the biggest thing it's got going for it. It's not Illinois. And that gives it like a, a significant stat buff. Yeah. We're just, <laughs> we're just guys being guys picking on the things that we love, uh, but I am dead serious about Illinois. It's, it's hell on earth. <laughs> you yeah, know, it's like, it's like, if you know, if, if me and Aaron 
were to go out in public. I'm not an especially attractive person, but I would look great because I'm right next to Aaron. And so it's the same thing with Indiana and Illinois, Indiana, like it's it, it's far from perfect. But because it's just next to its neighbor, Illinois, it looks sort of almost like the Garden of Eden. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's that was a good little jab in there. That was good. Very good. Very good. Uh, you're more attractive than you think you are. You need to know that. But Aww. that's all I'm going to say. <laughs> <laughs> the the friends, the friends giving has begun. <laughs> anyway, after clearing the land and planting corn, as they always do, the Lincolns then endured a brutal winter uh, in Illinois. All of them got sick and all of them nearly died, but they all also ended up surviving like the little cockroaches they were. Is that still too harsh? I really don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, Abe ended up taking another cargo carrying job back to New Orleans and made it about 20 miles downriver before stopping in New Salem, Illinois. Here, Lincoln's boss got the bright idea of starting up a general store and hiring Lincoln to be a clerk. This sounded like a good arrangement, so they finished their journey to New Orleans, sold their cargo, and came back to New Salem to do just that. New Salem was a small community, but it was bristling, I say, with opportunity. Lincoln had to find work to feed himself until the store could open up, and he did. And here we run into one of those events that just sounds made up. And that is one thing about American history. There does appear to be some things that are just straight fabrications whole cloth uh, I don't know if you've ever experienced this yourself but sometimes I read these stories and I'm like there's no way that happened a little, bit, little bit too perfect to be too perfect to sort of the the narratological goal yes yes exactly it feels like oh they're gonna make a movie out of this and then they inevitably do right so in New Salem, Abe got the reputation of being a good boy who worked hard and always paid his taxes and tied his shoes. But this didn't sit well with the local gangster community known as the Clary's Grove Boys. <laughs> They'd heard about this decent, humorous, tall, unbelievably well-endowed Chad called Abe and decided that they were going to cut him down to size. The leader of this group, named Jack Armstrong, challenged Lincoln to a test of strength in a wrestling match. Oh, I was hoping you were going to say it was an arm wrestling match, which was just going to be perfect because his name is Armstrong. Yeah, well, I call him Jacked Armstrong from here, now, here on out. <laughs> <laughs> so, Jacked Armstrong uh, went toe-to-toe -to -toe with Lincoln and, of course, lost and bowed in humility before the lanky woodland creature. Having thus proved that he did, in fact, have big Lincoln energy, Abraham's reputation within the community was solidified. You like that big Lincoln energy? Yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. They called it the Lincoln log for a reason. Oh, God. <laughs> I didn't even know. Oh, that's horrible. That's just terrible. Some... No. So after this, Lincoln began attending a debate club where he presumably began as a humble, muttering, smart boy before rising to his full power and schooling everybody there. I say presumably, but that's allegedly what actually happened. After impressing everyone with his sharp tongue, strong arms, and charming wit, Lincoln found himself being encouraged by town leadership to get into politics. And just like that, we've finally begun the section of the episode where we talk about Lincoln's political career as a filthy Republican. God help us all. <laughs> I'm trying to trigger everybody this episode. Uh, are you with it? Am I... I'm I'm with it. I'm with it. I'm, I'm not I'm not it. shooting too hard here. I'm, I'm here I'm here for it. All right. Hell yeah. So anyway, 
The political career of Abraham Lincoln began with him being unemployed. The business he was clerking at failed, resulting in him becoming a bum. He briefly joined up with a local militia to fight the natives who were looking to reclaim their ancestral lands, got elected captain, saw no combat, and left the service having done virtually nothing. After this, he tried to start up another enterprise that failed, found himself unemployed again, and then lo and behold, President Andrew Jackson descended from on high and gave Lincoln a job as town postmaster. The only mistake Andrew Jackson ever made. <laughs> Triggered yet? Good. <laughs> well, but seriously, Andrew Jackson came out of nowhere to give this guy a job as town postmaster. That does seem kind of weird. That seems like, I don't know, it feels like the president should have someone who like takes care of things like uh, appointing town postmasters. Yeah. I didn't really look into it too much. It just sounded so funny that this guy's like a... He's like unemployed. He didn't see any combat. Um, had a failed enterprise. Couldn't hold down a job. And then President Andrew Jackson himself like just makes him the town postmaster. That is, that is funny though about him, you know, getting elected captain and seeing no combat because there's a, there's a great comedy sketch by uh, Whitest Kids You Know, um, Rip Trevor Moore, who died recently. But it was, a, it was, a, it was making fun of political ads. But, but it was, well, it was a, a an a political ad and the the politician is like <laughs> i served for t for the minimum amount of time in a position that would see no combat why <laughs> because it would help me be elected as your senator <laughs> <laughs> that's funny oh yeah but that's pretty much how it is right so i guess it's it's only good comedy if it's telling the truth a little bit so how did this happen how did how did andrew jackson discover this this uh this smart boy in New Salem and give him postmaster. Well, it appears that Lincoln was already well-connected politically, and his neighbors in New Salem really didn't want him to leave the town. They actually did like him. So they pulled together and basically lobbied for Lincoln to get a government job, and he did. Nonetheless, it was barely enough money to feed the string bean stranger, but this work was supplemented by a surveying job he took with John Calhoun, a filthy Democrat. So you see, I'm getting both sides in there. Ha ha, ha ha, the eternal, the eternal centrist. I listen to Tim Pool, everybody. <laughs> did I? Okay, I'm, that's a joke, by the way. Um, did I? Did I tell you the funniest thing I discovered about Tim Pool? Um, a couple weeks ago. No, no, I don't think. Okay, you did. okay. So you you know who he is, right? Yes. Okay, he's the like the eternal fence sitter. Never takes a side. Started freaking out about politics last year. Lost everything and it, well he didn't really lose everything he kind of became a multi-millionaire and bought a huge house with a skate park in it hilariously enough um the funniest thing ever happened i think a couple weeks ago his followers the people who are still loyal to him realized they didn't know if he was vaccinated or not <laughs> and they were trying to figure it out and he just kept dodging like tim pool does and i was like of course like the one binary thing that everybody's dealing with right now <laughs> And they don't know what Tim Pool, where Tim Pool stands. That is pretty. It was classic. the funniest. Classic I mean, it was the Tim funniest Poole. thing. So the is funniest this thing uh, in the world? Is this the John C. Calhoun? I believe so. The fa the, yeah, the famous one who was vice president and senator yes. and everything. Yes, I believe so. Um, I in, in fact, I feel like I confirmed it because I was like, oh, wow, John Calhoun, he's well-connected. And then I just like, oh, yeah, there he is, and didn't look into it any further. But 
Pretty sure it was him. But, you know, he was a filthy Democrat, so we don't like him. I mean, or do we? I don't know anymore. Anyway, he's working with John Calhoun, um, and he barely knows enough at the outset to survey an herb garden, but he taught himself all the basics from a couple of books he borrowed from a friend. So he's learning surveying, just and like his old wasn't dad. His dad. Yeah, wasn't his dad a surveyor? Yeah. Shouldn't he have picked up something from that? Yeah, but, uh, you know, he didn't. He had to learn <laughs> everything. He had to learn everything from these books. That's how they get you. Yeah, well, I was going to say that's uh, that also sounds like Lincoln, right? Like, oh, he didn't know anything into this, but he his his teeming mind just just absorbed the information from the magic books he borrowed from a friend, and he became the best there ever was. Right? It sounds like a made-up, like, narrative. It sounds too close to a narrative. Let's just put it that way. But let's just assume that he did pick everything he, he knew up from these books. Um, and so he's postmaster and surveyor. And these two jobs put together were finally enough for Lincoln to take care of his basic expenses. But as for his debts, we find another story. The failed enterprise that Lincoln had attempted with a friend had put him in a fair amount of debt. So he decided to run for the state legislature in order to pay these off. That's right. From the outside, uh, from the outset, Lincoln was a confirmed political mercenary. <laughs> you do what you got to do to get ahead, I guess. I I get it. You know, you just might just might have to work in the state legislature legislature to pay off that college debt. Get a job, millennials. Just go run for state legislature. <laughs> Depending he on the state, a, that can be pretty easy. Yeah, uh, I guess that's true. But he said as a joke many times that he was running to settle his own quote national debt. But we see the real picture, don't we? <laughs> so that was his joke, is that he had a national debt, you know. So it's, it's funny, you know. He's funny, honest Abe. Hilarious. <laughs> so in 1834, Lincoln runs for the legislature and ends up winning a seat. He ended up leaving a solid impression on many of the people who are running alongside of him, including John Todd Stewart, who encouraged Lincoln to actually study law before he started writing it. What a concept. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I kind of, I kind of think there should be less people who've studied law writing it. You know, I'm almost right there with you at this point. <laughs> so Lincoln does study law, unfortunately, um, and he does this throughout 1835, borrowing more books from a guy named Judge Drummond. A year later, he would stop being a survey, a uh, surveyor, and start being a court clerk in Sangamon County. After a couple years of this paired with further study, he would become a practicing attorney, receiving his law license on September 9th, 1836, Illuminati confirmed. That would be 11-9-36, just so you know. 36 mm. is the inversion of love in, uh, oh, in uh, oh. Gematria, and 11-9 is the invert of 9-11, uh, so Illuminati oh. confirmed. <laughs> You can't become a real powerful government wizard unless you are a Freemason in America, so. I actually didn't even look into whether he was a Freemason or not. Was he? Do you know? That's a good question. I don't know. Huh. We'll, we'll ask, uh, we'll ask our, our team to do the necessary research to figure that out. <laughs> So in 1837, he moved to Springfield, Illinois to practice law before the Supreme Court. Here, he began to explore the concept of expanded suffrage. At the time, he supported the traditional form of suffrage, which had a few requirements. You had to be white, be a man, and own land. 
Also, you couldn't be Irish. <laughs> so you're out. <laughs> Sad day. <laughs> At the time, Lincoln supported this traditional format. So he did think you needed to be like Anglo-Saxon. You had to be a male and you had to have a land deed in order to have a say in what the, you know, what the government was doing. Um, he was, he liked it at first, so that's important to note. The much more radical and progressive stance was that you had to be, um, let's see. So yeah, the much more radical and progressive stance back then was that you had to be white, male, and living in the state for at least six months. So you didn't have to own land, but you still had to be, and I, I don't know if they included the Irish in there or not, but. The hope for expanding suffrage to the Irish and non-landowners was a Democrat strategy to get more votes. That's not an opinion, that is a documented phenomenon. Uh, G.K. Chesterton even talked about it in Britain about 80 years later, bringing in the Irish vote to vote Democrat. It's a, it's a known strategy, codenamed Lucky Charms. I always knew that little serial gremlin was extremely dangerous to our democracy. But hey, if it works, it works. <laughs> Where will the madness end? I mean, one day, one day you're letting the Irish vote. What, what comes next? Yeah, what comes next? Letting people vote. Ugh. Oh, that was unfathomable. <laughs> letting the votes count. How's that? Um, no, I'm trying to be extra offensive now. That way I, I muddy the waters and nobody can see me, you know. <laughs> but no, this was like a thing that uh, Democrats did a lot was they expanded suffrage as much as they could to get more votes and then they would offer... Um, they would offer more rights, more things for more people. And that's how they, it's, it's a, it's a well-known strategy. And again, GK Chesterton did talk about this in Britain. So it's not an American thing specifically. It's a legitimate political strategy. I don't know what to tell you. Um, Lincoln was the de facto leader of the Whig minority within the legislature, even though he was seen as sort of a behind the scenes meddler. He was known on the surface as being honest and upright. But he had a style of management that was much more passive-aggressive, you might say. Things would just change around Lincoln. And only after a little digging could you figure out that he'd filed some paper or written some little side note on an existing piece of work to change it in his favor. He was not a forthright person, for the most part. Um, but he never really, he never really directly lied, right? Like, it wasn't, he wasn't known as lying Abe. He just like, oh, well, I'll tell you what you want to hear, and then I'll change this over here, and then, boom, I get what I want. Um, he actually got in trouble for this at one point um, when he started writing diss tracks against Illinois auditor James Shields, posing as an old woman named Aunt Becca. These letters about James Shields were published in the local paper, and what, Aunt what Becca... What is it with American, like, political figures writing anonymous letters while posing as some sort of old woman? It's like Ben Franklin, you know, was it silence do good letters? Yeah. This just this just uh, a thing they do. Could be something to do with Freemasonry. Hmm. I don't know. I really don't know. I'm being intentionally aloof on this one. But yes, uh Abraham Lincoln pretended to be an old woman. So there's that. And he wrote these letters to be published in the local paper, accusing Shields of being a philanderer and a scoundrel. Those letters were touched up by Abraham Lincoln's future smoking hot hobbit wife, Mary Todd, to be extra salacious. She was really good at, like, making... Uh, no woman would say that, Abe. And he's like, but I think that... But you were... She's like, no, you silly man. Yeah. And she changed it a little bit. <laughs> so, of course, this was salacious and became very popular reading all over town. And Shields was widely dishonored. 
And Shields, an Irishman, knew exactly who was behind this foolishness. The Anglos. <laughs> the covert scandal was rank with Lincoln's modus operandi. Modus operandi? I really don't know. What is it? Operandi? Operandi? Operandi. Operandi. So he went directly to Aunt Becca, or <clears throat> Abraham Lincoln, and challenged him to a duel because he knew it was him. <laughs> and he was actually he was wait right. a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. What? I don't know what I don't know how lawyers pronounce it. I'll just be honest. It's one. It's one okay. of those things that yeah. I mean, like it should be operandi in Latin, but I know they don't say operandi. I know that's why I, I think said they it the say. Wrong way I first. think they say operandi. I don't know. I don't. But I don't they're, watch they're a lot lawyers. Of lawyers. They. Latin is magic to them, so. I love it. I still, I still, I have friends who are lawyers who still text me like, "How do you pronounce this Latin phrase?" And I'll tell them like, "This is how you pronounce it." I can almost guarantee this is not how they're expecting you to pronounce it, but this is how it's pronounced. <laughs> uh, just another little slice of life from your local Latinist. Uh so anyway, he went directly to this so-called Aunt Becca and challenged him to a duel. Lincoln accepted on the condition that they use cavalry broadswords for the duel and not pistols. Why? Lincoln knew that Shields was a crack shot, but he was also six foot four and would have a major height advantage. Obviously. <laughs> so not exactly noble, is it? It would even the playing field if they used pistols. A little Once too again, much for Lincoln. The, the grand historical persecution of the manlets continues on. <laughs> Uh, lucky charms. Shields, eager to defend his honor and unafraid to die for it, accepted the terms. The two chose seconds and met on Bloody Island to have their duel of the fates. What happened next depends on who you ask. <laughs> In one account, Lincoln took a swipe over Shields' head, cutting a branch off a tree and winning surrender by intimidation. In another, they just laughed about it and didn't kill each other. And in yet another, the seconds themselves intervened and made the whole thing stop. Whatever the case, Lincoln claimed he wasn't the one who wrote the letters after that. He just approved of them. And I don't mean approved of them. Like, he approved them. So somebody wrote them, and then he was like, yeah, send it. <laughs> so there's that. Send tweet. <laughs> it's sort of like all those celebrities who have, like, some obviously, like, 19-year-old intern doing their tweets for them. You're, you're so all that? of them. Yeah, all of them. Who they're not paying and they're just, you know, railing on the side, but that's another thing. In 1837, Lincoln campaigned for an infrastructural bill in Illinois that promised to get the state up to speed on the construction of roads, railways, canals, and more. But something else happened in 1837 that ended up causing a lot of problems. Do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, not off the top of my head, no. 1837, come on. I'm not an American historian. I don't remember <laughs> specific years, usually. Okay, I can't remember what it was called, but some kind of major economic depression, 1837. <sighs> anyway, um, for 40 years, Illinois would be paying the debt of half-finished canal... Oh, I'm sorry, wait, hang on a second. I might be completely wrong about that. Hold on, 1837, Illinois. I want to know for sure, because there was an economic depression, but I don't want to get that wrong. History. Let's see. Wow, I'm getting home listings for just Googling 1837 Illinois. Illinois' year of decision. That ah, yes. Promising. Ah, yes. I was talking about the panic of 1837. 
when the New York City banks failed and unemployment oh. reached record levels. Yeah. Okay. That, that, yeah. That was a bad time to be doing an infrastructural bill when the economy was failing. Um, panic 1837 couldn't have really caused picked a worse time for that. So Abraham Lincoln campaigning for this bill ended up putting Illinois in debt for 40 years um, on half finished canals, ditches, roads, etc. Um, and they still of, haven't finished the roads. Yes. <laughs> it's part of our history here. Um, because of the poor timing of this move, the debt was like 10 times worse than it would have been. And for two years after the initiation of this project, Illinois would suffer its own personal depression because they couldn't pay the debt. Many people in Illinois still suffer from personal depression. <laughs> you don't say. Someone is wearing wooden shoes above my room. Please excuse them. After this, uh, Lincoln became an advocate for the Illinois State Bank. Yeah. Um, and the ways he bent over backwards to make this happen are kind of insane. But suffice to say, he really, really wanted banking to become a thing in Illinois. And not just like, you know, he wanted to get it unified, you know? So he's using his persuasive skills and rhetoric campaigning on behalf of the bank, which had canceled specie payouts during the panic. Would you mind explaining what that is? Uh, that means payouts in actual precious metal. So the uh, at this point, I guess I don't think we had a silver standard. So I think specie would refer to gold specifically. And so you could take your uh, your notes, your paper money, and go to the bank, and they had to pay you the requisite amount of gold to cover them. I think it would have just been gold at this point because I don't think I don't think you we had silver specie backing currency yet so i'm pretty sure it was gold yep um just for what it's worth though i won't say for certain because i'm not a historian point is you can't turn in your money for anything real now um huh. funny yeah isn't that weird wonder if that's ever happened before or again hmm. should we google bankers <laughs> <laughs> So this all came to a head when Lincoln and his bake def uh, bake bank defending compatriots ended up jumping out the first story window of the legislature in a last ditch attempt to save the bank. Yes, he, he literally jumped out the window to avoid voting on whether the bank would be killed. It didn't work, and they were counted as present anyway, and the bank was <laughs> killed. <laughs> so yeah, he's he's uh, he's yeah uh, he's uh, into that uh, that old banking money stuff. So. Anyway, did you know that Abraham Lincoln married a bipolar hobbit? I can't say that I did. Okay. Well, he did. In 1839, Illuminati confirmed Lincoln <laughs> met Marianne Todd, a 20-year-old woman standing at the magnificent height of five foot two. Okay. Was, the way you kept saying hobbit, I was expecting like four foot six or something. Yeah, well, I'm exaggerating a little bit. Remember, I'm being mean. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. She was known for being very interested in politics and also witty, which turns out to be more of a drag when her charm wears off later on. Um, now, Marianne Todd is an interesting character for a lot of reasons, and she plays a big role in Lincoln the Unknown, Dale Carnegie's book. Um, it appears that Dale Carnegie liked to throw a lot of blame her direction for the darkness of his character, and I think that's a... She was a... Well... She was frequently portrayed in Lincoln the Unknown as a bit of a henpecking fun hater. And Lincoln just kind of had to drag her everywhere like a little ball and chain. Um, 
she was known to have serious difficulties with depression and mania, and was known to display these uh, difficulties publicly. And aside from this being embarrassing, it also cast Lincoln as a man who couldn't handle this woman, let alone public office. Um, I should have said he couldn't handle his woman, let alone public office. That's how it was seen. Um, and he was attacked for that every now and then. It was a little bit like how they used, uh, how they used, uh, Rasputin as a way to attack the Tsar and the Tsarina. I don't know if you ever saw any of that propaganda. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I was, I was going to say, you know, if this was a, a hundred years later, he could have just done what the, uh, the Kennedy family did when they had a difficult to control, uh, child and just had the ice pick lobotomy to turn them into a basically non-functioning, uh, semi-comatose shell. What are you referring to? <laughs> Rosemary Kennedy, who was the, uh, the problem child of the Kennedy dynasty, and so they had her lobotomized so that she would just be a vegetative state for the rest of her life. What? How have I never heard of this? You've never heard of this? Oh, yeah, no, the, uh, the Kennedy clan, when was it back in the, the 50s or 60s, maybe? Um, yeah, one of the, one of the children of, trying to remember which patriarch it was, I think it was, was it John Kennedy's father? I don't remember. Anyway, whoever was the patriarch, one of his children was kind of a wild child and was difficult to control, and they were afraid she was going to cause some sort of scandal to the family, so they had her lobotomized. I'm going to have to look into this. That's very, very interesting. And Rosemary How old was she? I think in her 20s. What? I could be wrong about that. You know, I'm just oh going to I'm going to look this up real quick, Rosemary. Yeah, Kennedy. let's do some let's do a little googling. I'm going to google bankers and you can google Rosemary Kennedy. Just kidding. I'm googling Rosemary as well. 23 years old. Are you kidding me? Mhm. Cuz she had a uh, mood swings. Oh. And so they lobotomized her and she could never talk for the rest of her life. That's awful. And this was kept that. secret for decades. People didn't know about this for, yeah, literal decades. Jeez, man, the history of lobotomization. President Kennedy's sister. <sighs> what the hell? Oh, wow. Okay, well, they didn't lobotomize Marianne Todd. <laughs> but uh, the way Lincoln the Unknown portrays her, you would think that was what Dale Carnegie wanted to happen. <laughs> um... Lincoln himself, uh, man, it's hard for me to just jump off of Rosemary Kennedy and go right back into this. Thanks for derailing <laughs> it. But uh, speaking of misfits, Lincoln himself was already a bit of a misfit. When the couple became engaged in 1840, Lincoln appears to have become very self-conscious about his failures and got depressed. I'm not linking his being engaged to a bipolar hobbit um, to this depression, but it does seem correlated, perhaps. I won't pull a Dale Carnegie and just say it was all her. Um, nevertheless, Lincoln did cancel the engagement. In 1841, he wrote to his mentor, John Stewart, saying that he was, quote, the most miserable man living, and that, quote, if what I fear were equally distributed to the whole human family, there would not be one cheerful face on earth. Why? Well, that's, uh, that's pretty dramatic there, Abe. Yep, yep. So we can only speculate. Um, and it's perhaps it's because he was feeling a little morally perplexed with himself at this point. Once he had, and, and that there's a lot of reasons for that. He was a very brooding man. Like he just, he would frequently just sit about in his office and think. 
And, you know, uh, Daniel Day-Lewis captured this a little bit in the movie Lincoln, which I could only get through five minutes of because it was just right out of the gate. So did you ever watch it? Nope. Oh, watch the first scene. You'll just cringe your whole way through. It is so Hollywood. It's like, you know, I've been working on this concept. I've been trying to figure out what to call it. But uh, there's movies that are made by people who do things, know things, and read things. And there's people, there's movies made by people who only watch movies. Um, and uh, I, I found a couple of these recently. Um, one of them is free on Amazon. It was called, uh, it was something about bird flu. It was like infected bird flu. Came out in 2006. It's free on Amazon right now. Go give that a watch. That appears to be a movie by someone who only watched the news and then decided to write a movie with only the information he got from the news. There's just no creativity at all in it. Um, there's no hot takes. There's no th twists. It's just like a movie documenting something they saw in the news. With actors. <laughs> it's really weird. Truly the highest art form. Yeah. I think the best example of this I can give is Aragon. Did you ever see Aragon? Nope. Okay. Damn, man. You don't watch movies, do you? Only John Wick. <laughs> I don't watch crappy movies. Aragon feels like a movie made by a person who saw the Lord of the Rings and said, I can do this. And then the catering was like all McDonald's. <laughs> right? Like that's what that's what Aragon feels like. It's got all this it's got all the money. It's got all the set pieces. It's got all the, the typecasting, the characters, the weapons, you know. But it's still just a garbage movie, even though it had all the money. Walmart it brand Lord of the Rings. What's that? Walmart brand Lord of the Rings. Exactly. That's exactly Alternatively, what it's like. Alternatively, that meme. Mom, can we go see Lord of the Rings? We have Lord of the Rings at home. Lord of the Rings at home. It's Aragon. <laughs> yeah. So, anyway, that's how the Lincoln movie looks. And I thought about watching it for this, and then I just decided I, c I couldn't put myself through it. Because, I okay, I I'll be honest. I did watch more than one scene. I watched the first scene and the second scene, and then I couldn't go any further. Because <laughs> it's just so... They really rode the Lincoln log, you might say. Anyway, so that's disgusting. I really should stop making those jokes. Um, so once he had spent enough time brooding about the state of the world, uh, Lincoln finally decided to rekindle his relationship with the bipolar hobbit Marianne Todd and eventually marry her on the 4th of November, 1842. Illuminati not confirmed. Except that November is 11 and 1 and 1 is 2, and November 4th would be 2-4-1842. Another inversion. Mmm, numbers. I'm just kidding about most of this. But when I start seeing 33s in people's dates, uh, I get a little... Hmm. <laughs> I start scratching okay, the old okay. noggin. Keep a handle on it. All right, all right. They would have four sons together, Illuminati confirmed. More on that later. <laughs> just kidding. All right, now that Abraham had finally found his Sarah... He was ready to pursue politics even more. Oh, As we it's know... A, it's a Bible joke. It's a Bible joke, get, get it? Because Protestants... Married to Sarah. Hey, you made a Bible joke earlier. I did. You did. You said you said something like, uh, as as the Red Sea parted before Moses. Oh, you're okay. Guilty as charged. I forgot about yeah, that. I was about to make fun of you for being Catholic, and now you're making fun of me for being Protestant. Guess but... I might as well start attending my local Bible church. <laughs> So, he's ready to pursue politics, because he's hitched, right? Bachelors only make it so far in politics. Um, and you need to have that first lady around when you become president, because a bachelor president would be way too crazy. 
<laughs> Could you imagine a bachelor president? That'd be kind of weird. Yeah, wouldn't weird. that be like, weird? Like, how do you how do you go on a date when you're president? You don't, and people will be wondering, like, what is he gay? Is he why doesn't? And it's just like a guy who be, who would be a bachelor and be of age to become president. That's a guy who's like a priest or like a wizard or some some like some like esoteric office elsewhere. He's had too long to think, right? A bachelor president would probably solve all of our problems. He'd be too um, powerful to be left alive. He would be too powerful. <laughs> From this point forward, historians are always questioning how much influence this little woman had on the big and tall section of the coming American presidency. <laughs> Sorry. I like how you stopped to laugh at your own joke there. That was I did because I forgot I wrote it in there and I just read through it and I was, yeah. Okay, so it's hard to know how much influence um, Mary Todd did have. But many believe that Lincoln, Lincoln frequently asked her for advice on how to handle things in politics. And we also know that she pushed him hard to take more power where he could. Sometimes not legitimately. Um, but we'll get to that if we, if we go into more detail with her in the next part of this. But uh, we're going to be dealing with an entire civil war in the next part, so probably not. So the two of them were not really alike at all. He was disorganized and indifferent, being too big-brained and too bo uh, to be bothered with keeping things neat. She was really interested in keeping things prim and proper, got into fancy dress, jewelry, you know, like, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Um, looking right, right, looking good, looking polit, you know, political, um, like politically savvy. And optics. his big brain, what? Optics, exactly. Marketing. <laughs> his big brain was, uh, you know, thinking too hard about the world. Um, and like... This always seemed really pathetic to Mary. Like, she was like, dude, just wear a suit. You gotta look good. And he's like, I'm too bothered and worried to 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 dress up. So, basically, she was in charge of his wardrobe for, you know, a good amount of the time. And he did come out, come out looking rather dapper, I will say. But, you know, he was very, he's a very, he's a very cognitive type. He didn't really... You know, maybe maybe part of his political brand was being the cognitive type, like the eternal midwit type. Um, but to him, uh, her fiery temper and interest in poli uh, power politics, material wealth, seemed low-minded, right? So it kind of goes both ways. He thinks she's pathetic for being interested in appearances, and she thinks he's pathetic for not being interested in them because he's thinking too hard, right? So they were not like a great fit in that area, but they did sort of bolster one another. Um, because of their individual weaknesses and strengths. And uh, Dale Carnegie puts a little, a lot of blame on her for, for his mood. But, I mean, to be fair, uh, there were some crazy stories around about her. So Lincoln's law career really did take off this time, um, now that he was married and looked like a legitimate man and whatnot. And he earned as much money as the governor. Um, wow. Yeah, so he's uh, he's making it, you know? Eventually, he did once again run for Congress, and he did win, and then did political things that nobody really cares about, like holding opinions and saying things, which I just didn't want to document any of it, because it's just politics. It doesn't actually matter outside of action. So during this time, he did really begin to make his will known about the slavery thing, and tried to pass a bill that would compensate D.C. if they were to abolish slavery in the capital city. Obviously, it never passed, because, you know, that place runs on interns. Ha! Uh... But anyway, this is true. I've, I've known a few of them. Many of them, some of them live like eight people to a one room apartment. 
Yep. So it's not really that much of a joke. <laughs> so Lincoln campaigned on behalf of future president Zachary Taylor and almost lost him the campaign because he took an anti-war stance on the Mexican-American War. He was nicknamed Spotty Lincoln because of his spotty take on the situation. Resultantly, he was not assigned a job in the government after the campaign. So there's that. He, he had a real big screw up there. So he went back to law at this point, earning five grand a year, which was about the salary of four governors with change. So he's somehow magnificently wealthy now. How? He was a clever bastard. That's how. Got into corporate law. Biggest scam on the planet. Uh, yeah, that's how he made his, his wealth. He Terrible. started lawyering for corporations. Meanwhile, a storm was brewing. New laws were being set up all over the place, each trying to solve the slavery problem wholesale, because it was very much becoming the talk of the day. It wasn't that nobody cared or wanted to do anything. It was that there were all these lawyers and politicians fooling around, passing bans here, revoking bans there, and generally not being able to come to any kind of unifying agreement over just what the hell to do about all these slaves. And the other part of it that I didn't even write in here, um, well, I, I did write a little bit, but like it was the moral problem of slavery. Like politicians were like, okay, well, we'll lose trade if we do this. The money's going to not come in as well, you know. We're going to lose popularity over here, but it was never a moral, like a moral question at the political level. And of until... course, the other the other big issue is that um, the system at this point was still much more federal in that uh, individual states were still doing a lot of their own things. Yes, very, very true. So it was hard to have like a unified stance on this. And there were debates going on in church. There were slaves escaping to the north and telling stories about their old masters in the south. Former slaves returning to their masters in the South because corporate conditions in the North were pretty much horrifying as well. <laughs> um, there were all these crazy stories, and it's, you know, the, the uniform narrative about the situation is uh, completely unfair to the history of that, to that entire situation. It's completely unfair to color it just one way. Um, the law kept getting in the way. The politicians almost couldn't help but try to rile stuff up, as they usually do. Um, it was seeming increasingly ridiculous um, that a country founded on principles of freedom would engage, ever engage in slavery to begin with. Race questions aside, slavery was in fact being practiced in many, many different forms, and they just kept popping up like a whack-a-mole machine. There was hostage slavery, debt slavery, guilt slavery, child slavery, corporate slavery, military slavery, slavery, pirate slavery. Like, I mean, it's all different aspects of the same exploitative garbage we see in modern day slavery. Um, just when people are being worked to death for no return or personal gain, that's pretty much what that is. Um, a lot of slaves were basically tricked into the lifestyle while others were forced into it openly by military conquest. The meme we have about rounding people up and selling them like cattle is really only part of the story. It's, it's just sort of an icon, like the here's Johnny scene from The Shining. Like, that's what you remember. That's what's in all the trailers and the YouTube reviews, but it's not the whole movie. Um, there were so many different forms of this shit going on and so many different proposed solutions. And it's obscenely complex, um, which is why I'm going to try to tackle it. <laughs> God help me. Uh, and in part two of this Abraham Lincoln series, because we do need to talk about slavery in the Civil War, and that's going to be a doozy to try to fit in here. I will end on something, though, because the next one's probably going to be a little bit more depressing. Um. I will end on something Lincoln said that I actually thought was rather profound for a man married to a gnome. 
This is a line from his famous House Divided speech in which Lincoln quoted the Bible. His politicians all used to do that sort of thing. Um, here, here it is. I believe this government cannot endure permanently half-slave and half-free. It will become all one thing or all the other. Abraham Lincoln, 1858. Make of that what you will. <laughs> so that's my edginess. <laughs> well, so what do you think so far? Is this is this good? Is this am I, am I hitting the mark? Yeah, no, I'm 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 enjoying this definitely. I uh, I knew sort of most of the the basic historical details, probably from a a slightly different perspective than the Dale Carnegie one that uh, that, that you grew up with. But uh, no, I'm enjoying seeing the picture fleshed out. I honestly knew basically nothing about Mary Todd Lincoln, so I'm very happy in my newfound knowledge that she was in fact a gnome. Well. <laughs> Um, you know, you gotta have, you gotta have the tall people marrying the gnomes. I mean, it's the only way to make the, the average height. People. I mean, that's one of my, I mean, that's one of my favorite sort of internet rabbit holes to go down is the gnome truther movement. You're going to have to explain what you mean by this. Oh, you know, because... gnome sightings and stuff. Like there's a whole, there's whole communities on the internet dedicated to trying to document the existence of gnomes. And you get like those grainy pictures and stuff and, you know, really blurry security cam footage that allegedly shows like a gnome shuffling across the parking lot and stuff like that. I'm actually not that far away from a person who had a gnome sighting. Really? Yeah. So I won't I won't share it because it's not mine to share, but I can say it is out there. <laughs> the, truth the truth is, is out is there. Out there. <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah, no, so I think I think I'll try to really condense the next one. Um we're gonna have to leave a lot out because you're gonna we're gonna have to cover an entire war and also slavery. So hopefully I won't be painting with too broad a brush on the next section, but I figured it was a good spot to end here because it's kind of the close of the you might say more innocent days of the Abraham Lincoln story. So <laughs> everything changed when the Republican Party was founded in eighteen fifty four. <laughs> there's a joke there that i didn't get uh, it's right. like and everything it was an avatar reference everything changed when the fire nation attacked. fire nation invaded yeah, yeah. Okay. everything changed when the republican party was founded in 1854 yes <laughs> all right that's that's good i like that <laughs> so what do you say shall we head to the service and close this out for now let's do it it's getting kind of cold down here i think you forgot to pay the utility bill Ugh. classic So, Aaron, if you had to choose one thing to never talk about on this show ever again, what would it be? And you can't say slavery. <laughs> uh, never to talk about it on this show ever again. Let me think about this. You know, I write these questions and then I don't think about them. So I end up just BSing. But I think maybe the one of the more uncomfortable things we talk about is like... Uh, 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 I don't know. Anything with secret societies. <laughs> yeah, kidding. and I, then the, the numbers start coming into it and things get kind of weird. Yeah, yeah. I get weird about numbers. I just think it's interesting. But <laughs> I just hey, think they're neat. Well, <laughs> I told you what got me going on the numbers, right? I don't think so. Okay, I can share this now. I can share this now because it's, we're long enough off that it comes Ooh, obvious personal revelation time 
No, it wasn't even that big a deal. It was just at the beginning of the pandemic, the number of 33s I was seeing in the news was obnoxious. So I started saving screenshots every time I saw 33 or 66 in the news or 6.6 or 3.3. And then you pinned them up on the wall and had red yarn attaching them. And I didn't even do that. I just saved it. I, I was like looking at it. I was like, this is like so weird. What is going on here? And then I start, I Googled the significance of the numbers 33 and the rest is history. I was just Freemasonry rabbit hole from there on out. <laughs> or you could say it's the rest of history. Oh, <laughs> And if you had to choose one thing to never talk about on the show ever again, what would it be? And you can't say Lincoln Log. Uh, (laughs) Well, that would have been it. Um, If that's out, um, probably, you know, anything that isn't the bankers. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You want to talk about the bankers all the time. I I do enjoy talking about the bankers. Uh, Bankers are fun. We should do, wouldn't it be fun to do like a complete, well, not a complete, but like a, a survey of like banking history? Or we get in trouble doing that. <laughs> I don't know. I'm pretty. I I have a book which I'm pretty. I haven't read it yet, but I'm pretty sure it argues that Julius Caesar was murdered because of banks. So I should read that. Wow, that that would be interesting to know. Yeah, you'll have to you'll have to update us if you uh, if you check this book out at any. Time. I, I will. I will. Well, I think it's time to bring the show for an end to, for today. Uh, but we'll be back for part two. If you hate us, you're probably Abraham Lincoln, or you probably just don't like us. <laughs> so you should consider funding the show by becoming a patron on patreon.com. Oh, wait, hold up, hold up. I've got a new idea. We're going to do a donor sequence. What does that mean? That means we got tips. And I want to call people out. Ah. Yeah. Yeah, I figure that should be, you know, that should encourage people a little bit. So, <clears throat> we got to call out, uh, let's see here, I got the list right right here. Obviously, we've got to call out Sith Psychopath. <laughs> he's He's been giving a, a little bit of love whenever whenever he gets a chance. And so, I've, I've, obviously, we got to say thanks to him. We got to say thanks to Eric. Uh, well, I'm not going to read last names. Maybe we'll That'd be figure weird. that out in the future. So Eric gave us 40 bucks, and that was really cool of him. And uh, he, he just said, services rendered. And I, I sent him a message. I was like, uh, is this for the podcast? <laughs> <laughs> and he said yes. And then we got a, we got one from Elias. Um, Elias? I think it's Elias. Uh, who sent $5. And he tipped us specifically for Swedenborg. The Emanuel Swedenborg episode. Mm. Yeah. Pretty, pretty, uh. Pretty interesting. Um, but uh, I think that's all we have for this month. We've gotten a few more. Obviously, Seamus. Seamus. Uh, that was a while ago, though. Um, yeah, I'm sure we've missed a couple people because I'm just going through my Venmo notifications. But we're gonna. I'm going to try to do this. If we keep getting more tips, I'm going to do a donation sequence. I can't not do a donation sequence, right? Like for tips. Like exactly. Specifically. Call people out. So anyway, um, or if you want to give regularly, you can become a patron on patreon.com. But, you know, I know Patreon's not my thing. It might not be your thing. And the tip thing is almost a little more fun. You can send us a note. We might read it on the air if it's not super rude. Our cover art was created by <laughs> Ian Patterson of Ian Patterson Illustration. You can or, more I, mean, I just want to interrupt you there uh, for a second. Uh, if you a- send us a, a big enough tip and it is super rude, we'll still read it. It just depends how big the tip is. That's true. That's that's true. So, like, if you hate us, like, oh, 
you know, unleash, unleash. Unle- it, yeah, send it, us a hundred dollars. <laughs> Uh, or more, and you know you can roast us. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's probably nothing you couldn't get Aaron to say on the air for a hundred dollars. It's true, a hundred dollars is hundred dollars, man. You know. Anyway, that's gonna probably be a new thing going forward because we've actually gotten enough feedback at this point for me to be like, okay, we could probably do this. Anyway, I prefer the Venmo thing. Patreon's great if you want to give regularly, but Venmo, 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 very good. And I'm gonna have to find other other ways for people to give because not everyone uses Venmo. And nobody wants to sign up for Patreon. Because <laughs> Patreon sucks! Our cover art was created by Ian Patterson of Ian Patterson Illustration. You can view more of his wonderfully whimsical work at www.ipattersonillustration.com. And with all that being said, we'll close out and let the sound of the eternal politician play you out. Ever since I was a small boy in Illinois, I've had a great personal admiration for Abraham Lincoln. So when we decided to recreate some of the great moments in Mr. Lincoln's life for the World's Fair, we directed all our energies to that task. We wanted to bring to the people of today the inspiring words of the man who held this nation together during its moment of greatest crisis, the Civil War. Now, to recreate a truly lifelike image of Lincoln, we use our new medium of audio animatronics. To start with, we were fortunate in being able to secure this life mask of the 16th president. During our exhaustive research into Lincoln's life, we studied his mannerisms, his gestures, and even his voice characteristics to create a faithful likeness of this honored man. The final result is so lifeless that you might find it hard to believe. Four score and seven years ago, our forefathers warned us that Michelle Obama is a man. The globalists have already taken over the solar system and are building Metal Hitler to destroy America. Only you can't stop them. Research flatter.